Good afternoon, London. It is your Tuesday afternoon edition of London Live. Yes, Mike Stubbs is away. This is his second day of vacation. He's back tomorrow, though, so don't worry. Uh, I am, yes, as the intro from our fantastic producer, Eric Scott, says, I am Jess Brady, uh, usually your morning news anchor alongside uh, Jake Jeffrey in the mornings. Tomorrow I will be back on air. In my usual place, uh, across the glass from where I am sitting currently. feels very strange to be on this side of the booth, as I have said. Uh, but yeah, so I've been filling in the last couple of days. And I got to say, this has been the busiest day I've had uh, while hosting the talk show in quite some time. This is like my third stint of filling in for, for Mike. And uh, yeah, the first time was last summer I filled in for a week. Then I filled in a week, uh, a few weeks ago, like last month. And now I did two days this week. And uh, yeah, in recent memory, this is is the busiest one I've had trying to arrange things. You know when you have a plan and then it all goes out the window when stories break and you're like, ah, you have to scramble and, and, and figure something out. Well, my colleagues who usually do talk radio, they're really good at it, whereas I get a little apprehensive about it. But we have done it because there are some really big stories that have broken in the last few hours. And you know what? It just wouldn't have been right if we didn't talk about it with you in the afternoon. Craig talked about it in the morning on, uh, on his show, but we got we to gotta give you the goods in the afternoon, too. So, of course, first story that I'm talking about has to do with a statement from Blackridge uh, Consultancy Firm. They're a political consulting company. And uh, Amir Farahi, who is one of the, the co-founders of that company, has to do uh, with the websites that were online during the last municipal election that uh, took aim at then-incumbent councillors uh, Virginia Ridley and Maureen Cassidy. Maureen Cassidy was re-elected. Virginia Ridley was not. Um, and so last week, you all know the story, uh, that... Uh, uh, court documents showed the names that were registered to these websites. They uh, were uh, the two two individuals who these uh, websites were about uh, allege that they were smear websites. And so we've had lots of coverage of that. And now four days later, four days later, we have after multiple attempts by all the media sites in this company, all the media, uh, rather all the media um outlets in the city, I should say, who have tried to be in touch with Amir Farahi and Blackridge, pretty much. Uh, They've now officially issued a statement taking aim at uh, the allegations that have surfaced because of the court documents, the legal documents that show names linked to this. And uh, yeah, it's it's a heck of a statement. And uh, basically saying that it's uh, slanderous to say that the websites were smear campaigns or part of a smear campaign. It's really interesting. Um, You've heard through the news uh, cycle this morning and through Craig's show, the response. But I'll, I'll read you a little bit of, of the story that we have uh, from 980 CFPL, our newsroom. And it's roughly a week after court documents showed misleading and derogatory websites made to look like they belonged. Councillor Maureen Cassidy and former Councillor Virginia Ridley were actually registered to a man connected to a local PR firm. The firm in question has released a statement. Blackridge Strategy is accusing the media of misrepresenting the content of the websites, saying, quote, the information presented on each page accurately reflected choices councillors Cassidy and Ridley made as elected officials. Among the information presented in the websites were suggestions that Cassidy can't be trusted because of her affair with former Mayor Matt Brown and accusations of child abuse against Ridley for bringing her son to a long budget meeting in 2016. Last week, court documents showed that the websites had been registered to an Amir Farahi of London, who runs Blackridge Strategy along with Jake Skinner. The statement from Blackridge runs counter to previous accusations from Farahi, who told CT London back in October that he was being framed and that someone stole his identity to set up the websites. 
Okay, so what does this all mean? Well, on the line, I have Matt Farrell, who is a political science instructor at Fanshawe College, and he's going to help break down this statement and his reaction to it. Matt, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. It has been an eventful day so far. Indeed. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, I am glad to get your insight on this because, as I said, very big day in London news. We've uh, had a, a long-awaited statement from uh, Blackridge, uh, the uh, the political consultancy firm, and uh, one of its its founders, Amir Farahi, who's been involved in this uh, scandal that first broke at the end of last week and has uh, carried on. Uh, what's your take on this statement? Well, for me... And I've sort of maintained all along, my initial reaction all along was that this politics is messy. It, it's a dirty game. We can expect stuff like this. If you want to characterize them as dirty tricks, then th- this is sort of what you get for politics. And I think the intrigue in this particular case was created by the, the anonymity and the initial denials. And so I think what we're seeing now is that part of the the, the story or the dispute is, is being put to bed. So at least the, the story has cleared that up. And that's no longer an issue. And then when, when we look at it, I kind of, you know, just step back and I do see this as more of just a, you know, a traditional old-fashioned political conflict between two different factions. And I, I think some of the language in the statement speaks to that and reinforces that idea. Typically, we um, at the municipal level, it's a few degrees removed from the same types of issues and in partisan alignment that you see at the provincial level national level, or frankly, even south of the border for that matter, um, you know, issues like BRT, for example, would, would be, um, you know, talked about more so than the, the traditional political cleavages. Um, but I think what this does, it sort of reinforces that that, that has sept, seeped into, rather, the municipal level. And we're seeing this is a political dispute that's divided along those typical political fault lines. We've got the sort of left-leaning faction with, um, if you want to call it, for lack of a better um, characterization, sort of a pro-diversity and inclusion um, ethos and agenda. And on the other side, you've got sort of a anti-media, media is the enemy, political correctness gone awry uh, sort of narrative. So I think what, what, what was initially very intriguing, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, who's running this thing, who paid for this thing, all that stuff. Now I think we're saying, well, this is just two sides in a political uh, dispute that really don't like each other. And, uh, and it's sort of mirroring the, um, the same types of conflicts and disagreements we see at other levels of government. It's sort of like, uh, you know, old school uh, political rivalry, but with the 21st century tactics in terms of uh, getting the messages out for, for at least one side in this case. That's right. And I've, I've sort of emphasized that um, whenever I could, that, you know, the tactics don't really change. The technologies do. So this is instead of, you know, trying to highlight your opponent's negatives and I mean, fairly or unfairly, um, however, you know, we want to characterize that. This is uh, how you do it. It's maybe an anonymous letter to the editor, maybe a, a door knocker, or maybe a, you know, a, a TV ad or a radio ad if, uh, if you, you um, were dealing with larger campaigns with larger amounts of money. Um, so we're just seeing more of the same. This is just a, um, an updated version of that type of um, electoral strategy, highlighting the negatives of your opponent. The only difference is this is um, done by website, anonymous uh, initially website. So, I, yeah, the, you know, the, the technology might update a little bit, but I do see the strategy as, as more of the same, classic political conflict. And this is, I mean, we're dealing with, at the municipal level, some of these races can be close. We're dealing with handfuls of votes one way or the other. So if you can, you know, whatever you can do to maybe have your opponent's supporters less enthusiastic about coming out to voting for them, 
and your own supporters a little more enthusiastic about voting for you or your side or your your aligned candidates, then you're going to do that. And so, yeah, you can you could say it's seedy. Uh, I mean, people will do. It's unfair. It's nasty. Politics is nasty, especially at election time. So I, I think this is really just, um, you know, again, now that we put that the questions about uh, about ownership and, and sponsorship aside, then this is, uh, I think it's just old school, dirty politics. Here's uh, here's something that I've been thinking about since this statement came out this morning, and I'm, I'm going to link it to another interesting case from uh, politics south of the border, and it's linked to the uh, President Trump's state visit to the UK. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the comments about the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, and how mm. <laughs> there was a tape clearly showing the U.S. president saying, oh, in reaction to comments from Markle, which date back, I think, to like 2016 or something like that, uh, where the president says, oh, she's a nasty woman or, or I didn't know she was a nasty woman. Something to do with that. And I'm not quoting directly. Absolutely. This very much reminds me of how there were denials in the media by Mr. Farahi of his involvement or Blackridge's involvement with these websites. Flat out denials. And now this statement, it's, it's no longer giving that denial now that the, the news is out there it's sort of like a so what so what so i mean this this speaks to me about this type of discourse that's going on and, and where where is the concern with actual truth and i know that always in politics mm. as you've said it is a nasty business and it just seems mm-hmm. like it's more blatant now it is and i mean to some degree truth is in the eye of the beholder right however you want to characterize your opponent's uh, activity strengths and weaknesses however but you're quite right that this is a um in terms of the discourse and the types of uh, the narratives and attacks that we see, it is um, almost uh, you know ubiquitous in North America. It's there are clearly um, defined sides, and you know that sometimes it's by parties. Not really. It's not really by ideology either. The only way that you know political science we've been able to figure that out is just to call it um, you know affective polarization or outgroup affect. You basically don't like the other team. And the other team means, well, it means whatever you want. And typically, um, it, for, for more right-leaning factions, the other team, the enemy happens to be things like the media, um, runaway political correctness, and so on. And if you're on the, the left side, it, it's more systemic things like it's racism and it's sexism and, uh, and things like that. So that, that's really, we, we could draw a line between politics at the municipal federal level, the provincial level, and again, south of the border. These things are, are kind of, it's uh, it's almost merging. The, the, the sentiment is the, the one of the strongest forces in politics right now is your dislike of the other team. It's um, It really dwarfs anything, any disagreements on substantial and substantive policy differences. You don't like the other folks. Yeah, it's it's true. There's there's a, a lot of discussion of that. Something else that's had a lot of discussion, uh, especially last week when the results of uh, of the several court applications that were made by legal representation uh, for Virginia Ridley and Maureen Cassidy came about. There was this real sense of and message that you know what we're not going to take this lying down. If you want to make anonymous attacks or uh, put out anonymous websites, we're we are entitled to the information as to who has put these out there. We're not going to like foster an environment where this type of discourse is allowed. It's a sense of fighting back against that. Do you think we'll actually get any traction on that? We see politicians, especially even the Trudeau liberals in the last go around said, oh, we're going to run a different type of campaign. It, it, we're staying away from the negative. Really, is that ever going to be possible? Will, will we see a renewed effort for that sort of thing? Or is it just, you know, it's, it is what it is and we'll forget about it in the next election season? 
And, and well, absolutely, and, it, and it's situational too. It's contextual. Sometimes if you're if you're playing defense, then you're 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 the one that tends to go negative. And I think you know the the, the sunny ways of Justin Trudeau in 2015 is probably giving away to a little more aggressive attack style politics now, just because he's less popular and he's having to play defense. And so I think that's more of just a function of the the strategy that you need to play in the given conflict or in the given contest. And so I, I think it is contextual. Um, you know, these people, they're, they're elected officials, they're public officials, but they're politicians. And so even though you're, you're in office, um, you know, whether it be on a school board or as a, uh, a you know, member on a police board, however you want to break that down, you are, you're political, right? As much as you will claim to represent the interest of the people, you have your own political allegiances that will, that will drive um, your behavior. And so, I mean, as much as, you know, again, I'm not somebody that's ever going to run for office. I admire people that, that, that put their hat in the ring and that, that sort of take on public service. It's just not for me, and this is part of the reason why, because it's a nasty game. Everything you do is uh, scrutinized. And at the same time, you are sort of, you do have a loyalty to your side and to your team that will uh, will sometimes shape uh, shape the things that you do. And so in that sense, at least the disclosure, I think, is good. I think it's good to at least know who's doing what, who's paying for what, and uh, the, again, just to, you know, to come full circle on this, I think the only real question mark throughout this thing was the, the, the anonymity. Um, with, with respect to the rest of it, I, I do kind of you know, shrug my shoulders and say this is what we get. I don't know why we would expect more of, uh, of the electoral process, because this, uh, this is something that's always been a constant Fair enough. And uh, I'm, I'm with you in terms of, of, of that anonymity question, if you will. I, I feel like if you have something to say, say it and attach your name to it. That's, that's where I sit. You know, let's just put it out there flat on the line. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and uh, for breaking this down for us and giving us your insight. I very much appreciate it. Good to chat with you, Jeff. Thank you. We need to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the other big story of the day. It has to do with LHSC and its budget. That's coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. Like I said, it has been a jam-packed day for news in this city, uh, which leads us to our next topic that we're talking about. LHSC, London Health Sciences Centre, sent out a statement early this morning uh, talking about its budget for last year and this year. Not great news. 2018-2019, it ended that fiscal year with a $24 million deficit. And for 2019-2020... LHSC officials say it needs to realize additional savings of approximately $28 million. That's about 2% of the hospital's $1.2 billion total budget for 2019-2020. Yeah, not great. Um, not great news. Not comforting for healthcare care in, in terms of those of us who are concerned about health care in the city. Should be everybody because we all use the healthcare system at one time or another. Uh, joining me on the line to talk about this story more and give us some context about what the situation is, I have LHSC President and CEO Dr. Paul Woods, as well as Neil Johnson, who is the LHSC Chief Business Operations Officer. And uh, they are on the line with me now. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us uh, about the LHSC budget news that's come out today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. 
So in the in the statement that was sent out by LHSC, obviously there are some uh, pretty big numbers and uh, it, it can be a little startling, I would imagine, for uh, the general public to hear these figures. We're looking at a, a $24 million deficit from the 2018-2019 year and uh, things are, are looking uh, not necessarily the best when we fast forward to 2019-2020, uh, looking at uh, needing to realize an additional savings of approximately $28 million. That's 2% of the annual budget. Uh, First of all, I guess for anyone looking at these numbers, what does it really mean in terms of uh, people impact for LHSC? Well, the um, the reality is that we are going to, uh, as part of our savings strategy, that we will see a reduction in worked hours uh, equivalent to 165 full-time equivalents. So those aren't necessarily people, but those are the hours that 165 uh, rules would hold. And so uh, we're looking to realize that over the next year. And so exactly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a scary number when you hear that because healthcare in this city is, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a pride thing that London has. We have excellent uh, care from our hospitals. Um, so we're not talking necessarily layoffs, but it, there's going to have to be some, some finagling done to figure this out. Yes, and, and we're in the process of doing that. And just though to put it in perspective, it represents 1.6% of our workforce. Uh, we're a very large organization. And so exactly how then is it, is it possible that, that we might realize this savings then? What, uh, Dr. Woods, if, uh, you know, how are we, we going to do this, essentially? Or how are you going to do this? I'm, I'm glad that I'm not on the budget committee. Um, so we're looking at numerous uh, tactics in order to be able to achieve this. So we have uh, temporary hiring freezes of non-clinical staff, uh, natural attrition, people retire or they move away. And then as each of those people leave, we will uh, take a case-by-case evaluation of whether they should be replaced or not. Um, and then also uh, voluntary non-union exits is something that we're looking at as well. So in terms of whether there will be layoffs or not, I, I know that in the statement it says it'll take some time uh, before you know if that's, uh, if that's going to be a reality. Do you have a, a rough estimate of when you might know if, if that's going to need to happen? It's Neil. I can, I can answer that. I mean, each one of the tactics that we have uh, to achieve our budget uh, financial plans will come into play at different times of the year. Uh, some of them um, have, uh, you know, been, been close to realization right now. We may have had some people retiring and we've already elected not to replace them. Some of the work effort will require um, uh, longer-term implementation plans, and you'll see them a little bit later in the year. And then, of course, we work uh, closely with um, our unions, and we honor the collective agreements that we have. And within those collective agreements, there are provisions for staff to be redeployed and, and so forth. So we it takes a long time to work through those levels of details to see, you know, okay, who is who is coming and who is going. And this is within the construct that each and every year LHSC hires, you know, over a thousand individuals. So we're always changing our workforce and uh, people are coming and going. So it will take some time to go through the details of that. Okay, so no no exact timeline then, as you said, because it is a, a significant amount of information that will need to be uh, parsed through. Um, in terms of the provincial budget this year, I mean, LHSC got, a, a, what, a 2% increase, I believe. Now, would it have was the budget a factor in this? Would it have been uh, less of a, 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 a high number in terms of that deficit if you had received more funding from the province? It's, it's Neil again. I, I think the, the the challenge with um, 
that the province has with finances is quite real, and we're very cognizant of that. Um, I think the healthcare sector in general has experienced um, uh, 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 inflationary increases from government that is less than uh, the inflation that we experience. Plus, London is a growing population as well, too, and we need to meet those uh, demands as well, too. Um, the the, the um, increases that we have received in funding this year uh, that is that is only related to inflation has only been about $2.5 million. That's on a $1.2 billion budget. So you can see that it is far less than the 2% that may have been advertised. The other funding increases that we've had is to provide very specific services, so to provide more clinical services and so forth. But the amount to um, to deal with general inflation or population growth is, is far lower than that. Um, so that, that as, again, that's nothing that's new this year. That has accumulated over a number of years. And so we always need to be looking for new ways to deliver service in a more cost-effective fashion. Now, this might seem, um, perhaps it's a silly question, um, but does, does LHSC or really any hospital in the province have the option of saying to the province, listen, we, we just simply are not going to be able to do what we need to do with this, with this funding that we received? Is there any way to go back to them and be like, hey, we need some more help here. Can you, can you help us out? Can, is there any way to get more dollars? It might be a silly question, but I figured I'd ask. Well, through the local health integration network, who are the, the holders of our accountability agreement, so they're the ones that hold us accountable to the province. Um, we have we all through the year, really, we we do uh, communicate with them and partner with them to try to advocate for, uh, for instance, uh, you know, things that would arise during the year or unusual pressures that have arisen. So, uh, so that does happen. But in terms of looking at our sort of uh, funding uh, allocation for the year, um, we don't really get a vote on that. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. It's it's basically, you know, what you get is what you get and you you have to make do, um, which certainly would make Londoners concerned. I mean, what would you say to people who are, are looking at this story and looking at the figures and they think that's a lot of money and equivalent to a lot of full-time positions and hours? How do you kind of put people's minds at rest? Well, I... I put people's minds to rest by reminding them what is our focus, which is providing the highest quality and, and uh, safety of care, and that that remains our priority. So when we look at uh, reduction in worked hours, we always put that lens on it first. And, uh, and so the focus is uh, going to be on removing worked hours as far away from the patients as possible, understanding that everybody in a healthcare provider organization is in some way involved with that, but looking at administrative and support and leadership uh, roles as being the, uh, the, the most likely culprits to find reductions. I think the other thing, if I can just add, is that within our uh, release and within our financial plan is quite a significant investment in um, new technology to provide top quality care and research. So um, we're replacing through a five-year plan our entire medical imaging fleet of CT scanners, MRIs, interventional radiology machines. We're investing heavily in digital health and expanding our electronic medical record. And then as well, perhaps not as glamorous, but making sure that our facilities um, have the right infrastructure as well too. And so um, that is part of the investment plan over the next five years. And that investment plan exceeds $100 million of investment uh, back into London Health Sciences Centre. Well, Dr. Woods and Neil Johnson, thank you so much for your time this afternoon going over uh, these numbers and uh, making sense of it for us and and, uh, kind of giving us an idea of what the impact really is and, and what it means for Londoners. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome.
Now we are well past the time for Jacqueline LaBelle's news, so we are jumping there right now. Welcome back to London Live. It has been a very eventful day in the newsroom here at uh, 980 CFPL. Lots of hot topics, lots of interviews being done, uh, talking about big issues of the day, including the uh, the budget news that we heard from LHSC. Um, we just heard from the president and CEO of LHSC, Paul Woods, Dr. Paul Woods, who's talking about uh, the deficit that uh, the hospital has for last year, the 2018-19 year, ended the fiscal year with a $24 million deficit. And uh, for the upcoming year, 2019-2020, we have to apparently realize additional savings of approximately $28 million, or 2% from the overall $1.2 billion total budget. Not great. Not great news. Now, joining me on the line to give a different perspective on this news uh, is uh, Vicki McKenna, and she is the president of the Ontario Nurses Association. And uh, Vicki, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to get a chance to talk about the situation in London. Now, Vicki, what did you make of this news when you, when you learned of it? We got the information this morning uh, through, a, through a release from the, from the hospital. Uh, what do you think of this? Well, I, too, just received uh, information today on, well, let's say this. If we did hear that there was, a, there was a budget problem. I mean, I can tell you this, that most hospitals in Ontario have a budget problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's described as a budget problem. What I would describe it as is serious underfunding uh, to the hospital system in Ontario. Uh, and and I don't know how much you've discussed earlier and, and all of the details uh, about that, but I can simply say this, is that hospitals in Ontario have been chronically underfunded for a very long time, years, in fact, and that uh, the government was told and has been told in previous governments, not just this one, that in just do what we call standstill, just to deal with basic inflation without any additions, they were going to need, uh, I think it was like 4.2 or 4.3%. Uh, hospitals were not provided enough money to stand still, uh, and far from that, as you can see by the budget shortfall here at London Health, or there at London Health Sciences Centre. So what that means is that the government is, in Ontario has chosen not to fund that hospital or most hospitals in Ontario adequately, and there will be service reductions and there will be fewer people. Uh, able to provide care in the hospital system in Ontario. It's truly disconcerting, and, and I know in the discussion that I had with uh, Dr. Woods and uh, Neil Johnson, um, they are they are trying very hard to make sure that people are are not uh, you know in a panic about this. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that any time we hear of cuts or. I shouldn't say cuts, but because as you know, the province did give money, it just as you said, uh, was not enough to cover current costs. Um, mm-hmm. So it basically amounts to a cut. Um, yeah. y- you know, like anytime we hear about a funding shortfall, perhaps that's the best way to go about describing it. Uh, we get nervous. And, and that's for good reason, because especially in London, our healthcare system is, you know, it, it is a pride, uh, a point of pride in this city, all the advances that we have and, and all the resources we have. But we all have our challenges. As you've said, every hospital in this province uh, is is struggling to balance the books and we get nervous when we hear about this sort of thing because we do not want to see care levels decline. That's that's true and I'm glad I'm actually very glad to hear that and I I am from the area. My nursing position is at London Health Sciences Centre. I've been in working in the system for uh, 
for a long time, and I can tell you that I know hospitals in Ontario have been trying very, very hard to find what you hear our governments talk about efficiencies. And uh, I don't know the line-by-line budgets at LHSC at this point. I'm not, I'm not there uh, to, to see those, and, and I'm not sure... Uh, how much level of detail has been shared broadly, but, uh, you know, these are not, you know, the budgets and the details of hospital funding aren't, aren't a secret, but I can say this is that I know that no one in this community wants to see any service reduction or loss of jobs. We know, I've talked to the leaders there, that we have had nurses there already that have been told that they will lose their jobs, that they will lose their jobs out of the family, um, Med- or family health teams that are working, both the one on Hamilton Road and the one in Byron. We've been told there will be job loss there for registered nurses. Uh, there will be job loss for registered nurses at London Health Sciences Centre, and we know that. Uh, the government or the, government, the hospital is planning that. The other thing that Londoners need to know is that when you start reducing the number of registered nurses at the bedside, the people don't do as well. The documented research is very clear. People do suffer more complication rates. They stay in hospital longer. It costs the system more. So you need registered nurses at the bedside, particularly when you're dealing with acutely ill people. And people aren't in hospital these days, um, you know, reading the paper. So we need to have the appropriate care providers in our health system. And I think that LHSC and other hospitals in Ontario need to continue to say and say when because in many cases they haven't, is that it's not okay to underfund the hospital system in Ontario. The hospital system in Ontario is some of the leanest and efficient in this country. We have the fewest number of hospital beds per population in the country. And we need every care provider we have. And uh, you know what? Efficiencies, uh, yeah, everyone wants efficiency, but we also want good patient care and health care. And I think the citizens of London area need to stand up and say so. It's um, one of those situations where you feel like you're being tugged at all sides. And uh, as I said in that that, that previous interview, I, I would not want to be on the budget committee <laughs> for any organization, never mind the hospitals, um, because you have these competing uh, priorities. And uh, I mean, no one wants to see patient care suffer. And uh, it's, it's truly... Uh, it's it's just a tough spot to be in, and uh, I, I really do hope yeah. that there's a way to, to make that message heard uh, higher up and to, to find some kind of a solution. Because you look at these um, the staff hours, the equivalent of it's 165 full-time positions. Uh, that's the equivalent of how much they need yep. to, to trim, right? And uh, that's it's startling because I, I think of every single one of those positions as being so vital and so crucial, and it's hard to imagine going forward without them. And uh, in, it's just it's just a it tough is, spot. It is it is very it is very frightening and concerning. And I too I know this is not easy. It is uh, it puts the hospitals and the budget committees in very difficult situations. But those rules. Those are the rules of the government of the province of Ontario. And uh, I think, you know, the government of the province of Ontario, you know, it, it is about, if it is about the people, then we, you know, maybe that some of those decisions that have been made are not the, in the best interests of the people of Ontario. So, you know, I, I say, you know, you've got to look at that too. But you're absolutely right. It's hard for the hospitals. It's hard for the budget committees. 165 positions on average hospital workers work just shy of 2,000 hours per year. So that's 
if you multiply 165 times 2,000, that's how many hours of care are being reduced out of the hospital system in London. Now, Just on its face. Speaking of uh, the reduction and the positions lost, uh, officials right now, they're saying that uh, they're not able to give us a timeline on when we'll know when those positions potentially will be lost. Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight, Vicky, in, in terms of what a, a rough timeline yeah. might look like? I don't. I don't have the, I don't have that. I didn't ask the leaders, you know, what was the, the date, the notice date for the official loss of the positions. I don't know that. I'd have to go back and ask them. I don't know. But usually for us in, you know, that we're, we're usually five to six months out from notice. However, I don't know when they gave notice. I, you know, I don't know enough of the details to say, but it's uh, probably not, you know, tomorrow, but it's probably not in the too distant future, I would say. Yeah, it's and again, that's the other thing that ratchets up the, the anxiety level with uh, the public and also the employees there. Because if, when you don't know, that's some of the worst time, medically or in a job position. When you don't know what's going on, a with your health or with your income, those are yeah. two very unsettling things. So, well, it is very unsettling. And I'd ask the leaders: Do the nurses immediately affected know that there is going to be job loss in their unit and that they are affected? And they were told me, yes, individuals have been told. However, uh, they have, you know, they have some decisions they have to make and, you know, there's a number of things that happen. So, uh, but all others in this organization will be worrying. They'll be worrying, is it me? Am I going to get the call tomorrow, Uh, you know, to say, oops, you know, or not oops, but sorry about this, but, you know, we're going to have to, you know, your position is now lost. Well, Vicki, I thank you so much for taking the time to, to call in today and, and to share our your thoughts on, on this matter. And uh, uh, we appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll be talking with you as, as uh, the days and weeks and months roll on and as we learn more about the impact of, of this information today. Okay. Well, thanks, Justin. I really appreciate it. And the public, it's good. The public needs to know and to hear clearly what's happening. And uh, I think that hopefully people will follow this, especially if they themselves or their family members are seeking medical care. Certainly. Well, Vicki, thank you again, and uh, all the best. Take care. Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That was uh, Vicki McKenna. She is the president of the Ontario Nurses Association, sharing uh, her thoughts on the news today from LHSC about its budget deficit from last year and the rather grim news of the amount that has to be um, uh, recovered or realized, the budget savings realized for this year that's coming up, about $28 million. Um, it looks as though we have a call on the line from Brian. And we're going to go to Brian right now before we go to break. Brian, you, you've got a you've got a quick moment to tell me what's on your mind. What's going on? Um, when they say budget cuts, everybody goes immediately to frontline services. And the hospital is going to look at themselves and they're going to think frontline services but do we really need 18 vice presidents? That's a, you know what? That's a good question. And I do believe in that uh, the, the in my chat with uh, Dr. Woods and with Neil Johnson, uh, it, it does look like they are looking at those higher level positions as well as as a way to uh, realize some savings. Uh, so it's certainly not just frontline employees. Um, but yes, the, your your point is a valid one. There's there are lots of questions about how our, our hospitals and, and their admin admin administration, sorry, <laughs> how those are structured across the province. Uh, but yeah, I do, if I recall correctly, uh, Dr. Woods did note that they'll be looking at those upper levels of management as well as they as they go through to try and, and uh, figure out where they're going to recover this mass amount of money. 
Well, I grew up in a house that was uh, built on uh, London Health Sciences Centre, and my mother lost her job two years short of retirement because they were looking for savings but couldn't find the savings by getting rid of directors or vice presidents. So you can tell me that they're going to look it up for management, but I can tell you they're all going to save their own skins, and they're going to cut nurses and say it's the government's fault because they do it every time. It's it's uh, you know first of all I'm sorry that that happened to your your family Brian because it's it, no nothing that uh, anyone says is is going to you know take away from your real life experience from what happened there and and I'm sorry that that happened because it is it is a brutal thing when you have layoffs in this this region no matter what industry uh, your family works in or you work in we've all been impacted or seen the impacts firsthand uh, of layoffs and job losses and we've been hit hard over the years in in multiple sectors and uh, it, it's not easy and, and Brian I thank you very much for your call this afternoon and for, no for sharing your thoughts. Um, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a celebration in the city. And it's it's uplifting. It's Eid for our uh, Muslim community members. It's very exciting. We're going to talk to Sahar Zimo. She is a board director at the London Muslim Mosque. We're going to find out all about Eid when we come back after this break on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It is a beautiful Tuesday afternoon in the city of London. I wasn't sure about what the weather was going to be like today. I didn't give you your daily weather update off the top of the show. I was all flustered with all the big news that was happening in the city. Currently sunny, a little bit of cloud, 21 degrees, in case you were wondering. And it's great that today is so beautiful outside because it's a very special day for the Muslim community here in London and around the world. Today is Eid, and it's a celebration the end of Ramadan. And joining me on the line to explain all about Eid and what's happening today and the importance of it uh, is Sahar Zimo. She's a director of the board for the London Muslim Mosque. Sahar, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, Jess. This has been obviously a very busy last month uh, for for London Muslim Mosque with Ramadan going on. But today is a very special day. Tell us a little bit about the holiday that our uh, Muslim community is celebrating today. Of course. So today is the first day of Eid al-Fitr, which um, Eid literally means celebration in Arabic. And it's basically a day of happiness and excitement and celebration for... um, our month-long fast during Ramadan, uh, in which we fasted from sunrise to sunset. It was a month of um, worship and heightened spirituality, charity given, and so on. And so today is really a day of celebration. Um, It's a day to be with friends and family. Um, It's a day that we get to uh, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with uh, friends and family as well, because we're not fasting today. Um, everyone's decked out in really nice clothing, and uh, I'm actually at a family gathering right now. We just had lunch, and this uh, this evening we're going to have a gift exchange at another family uh, member's house. So it's really an exciting exciting day um, with lots of celebrations, and uh, it's almost like a Muslim version of Christmas. Um, so it's it's a really happy day for us. 
Absolutely. It certainly sounds like it. And, uh, you know, London is is uh, a very multi- multicultural city and we have, uh, you know, a large population of uh, of Muslim individuals. And it's it's really neat to be able to have this chance to talk with you and to learn more about the celebration that so many people in our community are, are taking part in. Um, for anyone who is unfamiliar with Ramadan and the meaning behind it, um, why is it that uh, there is fasting involved in, in, in that month? Of course. So um, Ramadan is uh, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And so every year we experience uh, Ramadan, and it's a, a month-long fast in which we fast from or we abstain from food and drink from sunrise to sunset. And it's really a, a month of extreme worship and um, charity giving. There's lots of volunteering. Um, and it's really meant to instill discipline, um, self-control. You become more pious and righteous um, during it all because you're trying to better yourself. You're trying to set goals that hopefully you continue doing outside of the month of Ramadan. Um, and uh, it's something that because it happens every year, you're able to reflect back on it, and you're able to improve from one year to the next, and hopefully those those good behaviors and actions that you've done during the month of Ramadan, you can continue doing them outside of Ramadan. It sort of also reminds me of Lent in the in the in the Christian religion or, or rather the faith. Um, it's it's interesting how there are so many like similarities between different uh, faiths and, and denominations, even within a certain faith. Uh, it, we're very absolutely. similar in so many ways. For sure, absolutely, and we believe that too. Um, in in the Quran, it says that um, you know we fast because it was. We, we fast similar to how it was prescribed for those before us, meaning the Jews and the Christian, how they fast within their religions as well. So it's almost like a continuation in the faith, in, in Islam, that we fast as well. So absolutely, it's very similar to Lent. It's neat. I love uh, learning about those differences, but also the connections and the similarities. Uh, Sahar, tell me a little bit about what's what's happening uh, at the Muslim mosque today. If there are any festivities uh, that are that are going on for the celebration of Eid. Oh, for sure. So the London Muslim Mosque has been very busy from very early this morning. Um, so we we had multiple prayers for Eid. Um, Eid day usually starts with a prayer, a community prayer. And because we have such a large, large Muslim community, we had multiple prayer locations. Uh, the mosque actually hosted three of them to try to accommodate as many people as possible. Um, and that started as early as 6.45 uh, this morning. And the last one was around 10.45 um, in the morning as well. And then if you were in the south end of the city, we had an outdoor uh, prayer as well at White Oaks Park. And that was really nice because we had about 2,000 people come out to that. And uh, again, we were able to accommodate as many Muslims uh, within the city as possible. Um, and so it was nice because everyone was decked out in their nice clothing and you know, candy was being given out. Um, but this afternoon, actually, back at the, at the mosque, there is a festival for teenagers. So there are um, sports tournaments and a barbecue, and it's it's, it's, uh, it's supposed to be a really good time. Um, and then on Saturday, there's also a children's festival um, for uh, anybody to come and join us at the Islamic Center, which is in the south end of the city as well. 
So lots of festivals. Um, there was prayer in the morning, and now it's just really a day of celebration and happiness. So, yeah, lots going on. It sounds like a, a beautiful celebration, and uh, I, I love hearing about the, the out, outdoor cere- ceremony that happened this morning. Uh, I think that's such a neat way for the community to come together and, you know, to uh, involve the rest of the community as well, because people who are, who are you know, traveling by or live in that na- neighborhood, neck of the woods, it's neat to see uh, that expression of faith, and, you know, it's, it's a community-building opportunity. Exactly. And it is really nice because everyone is so um, so friendly. It was such a peaceful day this morning. Uh, really glad that the, the weather cooperated with us. Um, there were calls for rain, but, you know, thank God it didn't rain. Um, but really, it is a really nice opportunity for anybody passing by um, to ask about, you know, what, you know, what is this prayer that you're observing? What is today? It's the best way to connect and, and you know, for interfaith dialogue or for, for questioning or, or educating. It is the best way. Um, so, yeah, no, it was beautiful. Wonderful. Now, there was also uh, a breaking of the fast ceremony that happened, was it yesterday or the day before, at Victoria Park? It was on Sunday evening, and it was an iftar, uh, so like you mentioned, a breaking of the fast, um, in, what, in which um, many of our volunteers from the London Muslim Mosque uh, brought out some meals, and anyone that was fasting was able to break their fast um, at the park. And um, it was also an opportunity for anybody that was less fortunate, that was walking in the park, um, the homeless, to join us in that meal. So we actually walked around the park, and anyone, um, we invited everyone to, to, to break our fast, but also to have a meal with us. So it was a really nice event. And again, anything you do outdoors, it brings people together. Um, the weather has been so beautiful. It was, it was a little chilly, um, but it was just so nice to, to gather as many people as we could. Um, you know, answer some questions, break those barriers. Um, and it was, we had a great time, really. That's fantastic. It's it's awesome to hear about all the wonderful things that are happening in the community, all these uh, relationships that are being built and understanding. And it's just fantastic. So, uh, Sahar, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me this afternoon, especially you're at a family gathering right now. That's dedication. And, uh, you know, Eid Mubarak to you and to your family. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And Eid Mubarak to you too as well, Jess. Okay. Once again, (laughs) my producer and Jacqueline LaBelle are probably going to be pretty mad at me because we are over uh, heading into news right now. When we come back on London Live, we're going to talk to the new acting deputy chief in the city of London, Trish McIntyre. This is 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It has been a very busy show today. Lots happening in the city of London on this Tuesday afternoon. It's gorgeous outside, too. Lots of sunshine, a little bit of cloud. I think last check, we're at about 21 degrees. Very nice way to start the week. Now, Mike Stubbs is back tomorrow with you. He's been on vacation a couple of days, but he's back, as I said, tomorrow at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I will be back on the morning shift tomorrow on air with your morning news with Jake Jeffrey. So when we went to break, I told you that uh, we were going to talk next with someone who made news yesterday with a big announcement, new acting deputy police chief, Trish McIntyre. Her appointment was announced yesterday, and uh, we have a chance to chat with her about the news of her uh, promotion, her appointment. She joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to chat with you and to learn a little bit more about this new appointment. No problem at all. First of all, congratulations. It's exciting news. And uh, I, I suppose, what was your reaction when, when you found out that you'd been chosen for the position? 
I guess. Uh, I guess, you know, part of me shocked. Um, I think, you know, although I obviously had a bit of lead up to it and to the announcement itself, it was, you know, it took a little bit to sink in. Um, obviously, just become my position and kind of jumping uh, ranks to do that. So I think initially it was more shock. Uh, and then quickly followed by excitement and, and all of those things. But yeah. And now we've learned a little bit about your history with the London Police Service uh, since the news came out yesterday. Uh, but you started off with London Police as, as a cadet, right? Back in 99. Yeah, correct. And so tell me a little bit about what it's been like as your career progressed through the service. Uh, oh, I, I've had uh, like really an excellent career. I, I've been fortunate to work in many amazing spots. And so I started as a cadet, obviously went to the college, and I was in uniform patrol and went to major case management, from there to sexual assault and child abuse, um, from there to major crime. So spent a um, considerable amount of time in CID. I was promoted to a sergeant and stayed in major crime, and then from there went to our professional standards branch, which is really internal investigations. I was promoted and went back to the street. So I had a whole platoon um, on the street, three section I was in charge of, uh, which was amazing uh, team of people and, and, you know, brilliant officers on the front line. So that was phenomenal. I transferred from there and uh, went back to our investigations branch and took a section in um, investigations. And then uh, recently was uh, promoted to an acting inspector, which I kind of took over a patrol, whole project running patrol modernization and looking at how do we change how we do things, how do we modernize our approach, uh, not just to the front line, but to the organization as a whole. So that was an exciting project, which I still kind of currently sit in until uh, this promotion to acting deputy. Something that I've always found so interesting about officers who are, who are promoted up into the uh, upper ranks of, of the um, of the service, uh, like yourself, um, you have such a vast experience. So it really gives you a great overall knowledge of all the different sections, how uh, service members, what they see on a day-to-day basis. So you have a great understanding of what goes on in the service. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, that ability to really have one place of employment, but to work in numerous areas that really on their own are very different. Uh, so it does give you that different lens uh, to really view the organization through and, and really that kind of mission, vision, values of the organization and, you know, what is the strategy. So every different spot, a completely different focus. So it's really interesting. And you mentioned uh, just in, in your last where you've had the acting inspector role, uh, you've seen, you've had had discussions and, uh, you know, played a part in, in how the service has grown over the last, uh, you know, several years, obviously. In the span of your career with London Police, uh, how would you say the service has changed or is there anything notable that you've seen a difference in? I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think obviously we've grown in size. Um, I think, uh, you know, right away, uh, the number of females, you know, number of women in policing has changed. The number of diverse members has changed. And, and really, when you, you know, we, we applaud that, obviously, to be representative of the community we serve. Our ability to engage the community is in, incredibly heightened by that. But the, the takeaway there and the real change is that diversity of thought, how we think, how we address problems, how we collaborate as an organization. You see great strides in changing that framework, which is exciting. 
Certainly. And it kind of leads nicely into the next question that I had for you, uh, being that you are now the first female acting deputy chief uh, in the service's history. It's it's uh, it's a, certainly a great moment. You know, speaking as myself, a, a female, it's it's nice to see uh, another another woman in a position of leadership in such an important um, organization in our community. Uh, have you heard from other female members of the service and, and how does it feel to, to take on that mantle? It's a big role to fill, and I think the importance of it really, truly not lost on me uh, to be that role model for women, but for women, obviously, in the community as a leadership role. So that's exciting. Um, but I, I guess I can say um, I don't think of it, you know, I get that I'm the first and, you know, we, we can use that loosely, but so many women uh, ahead of me, really, right, that pioneered um this long before really me and and kind of did the heavy lifting and i think maybe i'm just now fortunate to be part of that generation that had the ability that really that the permission if you will to be heard and so that's exciting so definitely although yes i guess technically i'm the first like we have two female inspectors in the organization that are incredibly talented um you know i've learned so much from them and so supportive of me even as i step up into this role so i think it's kind of you know, that, that strength in the team and the strength and the support of the organization that I have is, you know, uh, one of the major benefits. So as far as females, for sure, you know, since this announcement, um, you know, it's great to see everyone so excited. So that is motivating for me, for sure, in the organization. Absolutely. And I guess it, uh, you know, it, it casts your mind forward to what comes next. And uh, as you said, like, you're the first in, in name, and but there's been lots of support from others uh, before you and current colleagues. Uh, it, and it makes me think, as I said, of the future and what will come next, um, and who will come next after after you and, and that sort of generational thing, which is fantastic. Um, what would you like to see happen for London Police Service moving forward? What do you what do you envision for its future? Well, for the future, I just think, uh, you know, we have a great real sense of momentum moving now as we change and as we look to modernizing what we do and how policing really and how police interact with the community and how that scope is changing. So I can see that progression will be amazing. So to continue that forward thinking uh, is definitely one goal. I think the support of our members, so all things mental health and really the support of members. We look always in an organization to drive efficiencies, and I think I'm a huge advocate of um, really driving that efficiency through our people. Are the people here engaged? Are, do we support them? And that really inside-out proposition that if we if we take care of our members, clearly the largest asset in our organization, then our ability to interact and engage the community only goes up. So I'm a huge um, supporter of that methodology. So my goal is kind of moving forward would be really all things modernization, but then it's right to our, our people in the building, the membership and support of them. It's funny, eh, how we often have uh, the the thoughts of the future in mind and modernization, as you said, but it really does come down to that basic principle of looking after looking after people and and uh, you know which London Police uh, and yourself keeping that as a goal. And it's it's the same across many organizations. If your people aren't in a good spot, the organization is not in a good spot. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And I think you know when we give our people permission to show up. And to be seen and to be human, like that authentic piece. And are we, the tone from the top is really leading through from a position of authenticity. Then we only drive that. We give the permission to be real. We support our people. 
and they in turn do amazing things. Amazingly talented individuals here, So, but have we truly tapped their potential? And I think we'll just see that grow exponentially moving forward. Well, congratulations again on the appointment and, uh, you know, very well deserved. And we're, we're excited to uh, have you in that role. And I'm sure we'll be talking with you more in the future as we go along. Yeah, thanks so much. We need to take a quick break. When we come back on London Live, we'll talk to Dr. Cheryl Forchuk. She's the lead researcher on a program that was run by Lawson Health Research Institute. It's called No Fixed Address. We're going to explain what that's all about coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. We are coming up to the bottom of the hour. Before that, though, we, as I said before the break, we're going to talk about a program called No Fixed Address. And it was uh, basically a study run by Lawson Health Research Institute. And it looks at a strategy to reach and support patients during the crucial transitional period when they are being discharged from hospital and reintegrated into the community. No Fixed Address Research Project is the first evaluation anywhere, anywhere, of a strategy that aims to reduce the number of hospital patients being discharged into homelessness. So this uh, program, over nine months, they had 74 people experiencing medical health issues assessed through the program. Of those, 54% were also experiencing mental health challenges. All of the study participants were in imminent danger of homelessness. Through the supports provided as part of the research study, half were able to arrange housing before being discharged. So joining me on the line to talk more about this program and to really explain it for us is Dr. Cheryl Forchuk. She was a lead researcher on the No Fixed Address program through Lawson Health Research Institute. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to talk about the No Fixed Address program. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about uh, how this all worked and, and, and what Lawson did here in, in terms of uh, looking at this, this issue of homelessness. Right. So one of the things that's really important, Lawson and myself as a, as a researcher, certainly played a key role in terms of the evaluation, but we didn't do the program. This is very much a community collaboration, so we work very closely with the Canadian Mental Health Association locally, Ontario Works, uh, the Rent Stability Bank uh, at the Salvation Army, and with the City of London to, to make this happen. And I think that's part of it, because the hospitals alone, and certainly we worked with both um, with Victoria Hospital and the University Campus of LHSC for the medical wards. We're also working with both St. Joseph's and LHSC for the psychiatric programs. The hospitals alone can't solve the problem. The researchers alone can't solve it, and neither can the community agencies. It's really through this kind of collaboration. And what we're, we tried to do, if someone's in hospital and they lose their housing or they didn't have housing, something happened prior, and we have great community resources to help in that situation. Uh, people like income support, housing agencies. But if you're in hospital, you can't access it. You can't. If you could go out and connect with those community services, you would be at the point where you could be discharged. So it can create a really difficult situation that the person can't access the services. So what we did is we brought those community services physically into the hospital. Uh, And what we're talking about today, which was a bit different, we've been doing this for a while with the psychiatric wards, uh, but we, and that study's still going on for another year, but we got some short-term funding to also look at this with the medical wards. Uh, So 
So that's basically what we did. We brought these resources in to see if we could prevent discharge to homelessness from our medical wards, which doesn't happen in some cases as, as frequently per ward as with a psychiatric. The risk is less, but uh, it's, it's a very serious problem when it does happen because uh, you can imagine trying to recover physically and being homeless. I, yeah. It's not ideal, right? No, certainly not. And it would it would certainly, uh, you know, in many ways, make a physical ailment uh, so much worse if, if you're not able Absolutely. to rest properly yeah. and, and, and convalesce, if you will. You're right. And where do you even store your medication? Yeah, absolutely. That's There are so many things uh, that people who have never experienced that, who don't have a lived experience with homelessness, so many things we wouldn't even think of, which must have mm-hmm. been very interesting for researchers like yourself and, and for all of the team members on this project to learn about. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so, and in terms of what we learned, because there really wasn't a lot of research evidence about strategies for this population, just as when we start with the psych wards, there's, there hasn't really been a lot. And we found with the psych wards, this idea of bringing people in worked really well. So far on our psychiatric wards, uh, when the hospital refers to our team and we can involve these community agencies, we've actually been able to prevent discharge to homelessness about 88% of the time. Uh, so it's not 100% to be happier with 100, but 88% is pretty good. Um, we took the same intervention to the medical wards. On the medical wards, there's a few complications. One, um, we couldn't use a drop. We had a, an office and a drop-in set up as well as going to, to the programs and the psychiatric wards. If, if someone's in a medical bed, they really can't go, go drop in. Um, so we didn't... We, we didn't have the ability for self-referral that we did on the psychiatric wards. We really had to count on the staff to recognize it, make a referral, and then have our team go into the medical ward. We found the medical wards, um, people often had very serious medical pro- problems, physical as well as mental. Uh, just over half the time, they had a mental health condition on top of the physical health condition. And the lengths of stay were incredibly shorter uh, in many cases, it was a one-day admission. Uh, so that gives a very small opportunity to actually intervene for someone who has a number of challenges. Uh, so what we found uh, is we were actually, almost everyone referred uh, was at imminent danger of being discharged into homelessness. And we found roughly a half, slightly more than a half of the time, uh, we could prevent that from happening. Uh, so not as successful as the psychiatric wards. On the other hand, having half of them not be discharged into homelessness is certainly better than having them all discharged into homelessness. But we we took a, a close look at that and found it really was this shorter length of stay that that was the main difference. The fact and the fact that we were much more counting on the staff to identify it. Uh, whereas in these psychiatric wards, the person could identify it themselves, go to a drop-in as well as the staff identify it. So re- our recommendations going forward is that we think we need to augment what we're doing um, elsewhere by having a transition team so that in one day, in some cases, we actually got the referral to the program within an hour, within an hour of the person leaving. Uh, you'd have to be superhuman to prevent something to happen, uh, a discharge homelessness in one hour. Uh, but 
we could reduce the time homeless. Like we, if we, if we could also do some transitional report, engage our uh, community workers. Uh, so, so really, this is what we're thinking. Half the time we could prevent it, but the other half we probably need to be offering some uh, transitional case management to shorten that risk as much as possible. Uh, we also need to work with our staff in the hospitals to, given that they have such a short window of opportunity to see what we can do to help better identify who is at risk uh, so that we can um, identify that risk and and get in there, particularly because we're going to be counting on the staff uh, to notice that when when people aren't going to be able to just drop in or self-refer like they can in some of the other programs that we've been working with. So, so I'd say those are certainly uh, the major learnings. I say half isn't bad, but it's not good enough. I think it's uh, very, very interesting to hear the results of this work that's been done in, in both the, uh, the the mainly medical and also in the, the mental health wing, psychiatric wing. Uh, it's it's stunning to me, and it, it makes me very hopeful. You know, when you talk about those stats, how you say, you know, half, you would rather see it at 100%, uh, or when it was the 88% success rate, uh, you would rather see it still at 100 But it makes me hopeful that there are inroads being made, and we have professionals like yourself and the, and the teams, the clinical teams on, on on site at our hospitals uh, that have this in mind and are able to, you know, start making an impact for people as they try and recover uh, both mind and body and, and try and, and get themselves into a better situation. Absolutely. And and I should say like the, the main learning really is that it does require a team. We have to bring those income supports and housing supports into hospital. Uh, no, it's not just about... Um, we can't just blame the hospitals and say it's bad discharge planning uh, when it is much more complex and it, it includes these things like we need to bring in those housing and income supports. And, and that really has been the, the key to the success that we have had is bringing those resources uh, in a partnership model into the hospitals. Absolutely. It's it's funny, you know, earlier in the show, I, I was talking about, uh, you know, the new budget uh, story that's come down from LHSC and the and it, it seems like every year we have stories about uh, how the belt is getting a little bit tighter each and every mm-hmm. every few months, really, because there are just real world pressures, unfortunately. Um, but this type of story is 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 so important to talk about the collaborations that are happening, happening, the good work that's going on uh, within our hospitals to help people. Yeah, and and it it does link in because if you do discharge someone homeless, there's a four times more likely likely occurrence that they're going to be back in a short period of time. So then, by not dealing with it um, at the discharge, you're perpetuating a problem. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a domino effect and one of those uh, vicious cycles that if you if, mm-hmm. if we don't do something now and try and uh, you know help people at at the beginning, it will only get worse. So it absolutely. is absolutely it is uh, you know uh, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Doctor Cheryl Forchuk, and uh, learning about what's going on at Lawson and and the work that's been done with the teams at our our local hospitals. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Okay, we are late into news. I'm the worst today. It's awful. Uh, Jacqueline LaBelle has everything you need to know coming up in 980 CFPL News right now. Welcome back to the program. We are in our last half hour. It's flown by once again. Uh, what we're going to talk about now, I feel like we've had a lot of healthcare related topics, uh, today. And that's, that's cool because there's a lot going on in the city, uh, both hard news and more featurey type information. So that's good. We're getting a good mix in here, Londoners. It's good. 
Uh, our next topic that we're talking about is this program through St. Joe's and through Children's Hospital. It's called Warrior Beads Program. And the news first broke out about this last week, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to chat about it because it's it's really neat. It's a it's a cool way of meshing an older generation with a younger generation and helping people uh, get through some tough times. And essentially, this Warrior Beads program involves veterans who live at Parkwood Institute, that's St. Joseph's Healthcare London, um, and these veterans who are on site, they make these beautiful clay beads and they hand make them and they're, you know, put in a kiln and finished off and they're beautiful and they're glossy and it's lovely. And then those beads go to children who are receiving treatment at Children's Hospital. And it's meant to, you know, help inspire some bravery and let them know that people are thinking about them as they go through their treatments. And I had the chance to, uh, well, I'm about to have the chance, I should say, to have a chat with two of the veterans who live at Parkwood. John Doucette, he's 78, and he's served with the Ceremonial Guard in Ottawa at Parliament Hill. And Arthur Stanning, 92 years young, and he served with the Royal Canadian Navy as a gunner in World War II. Also on the line is Kim Smith. She's an instructor at the Veterans Art Program at Parkwood. They join me on the line now. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. It's it's a pleasure to speak with all three of you. I think this is the first time I've had uh, three people on a line for an interview. Some days you get lucky. <laughs> I do. I consider myself very lucky, sir. Absolutely. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about uh, the program in general, Warrior Beads. Uh, we learned about this uh, last week when, when there was the big event at St. Joseph's at, at the hospital and as the beads were being given to uh, the kids over at Children's Hospital. What was the inspiration for this program? Kim, maybe you can give us a little bit of that initial history. Well, we, I came up with the program because the veterans really like to give back, and it's important that they give back to the community. And I knew that uh, bravery beads were a thing, were something that was given to the children at SickKids. So I thought that the veterans would like to be part of that, creating something that they could give to the children. Absolutely. And, and you're, you're spot on when we're talking about our, our veterans because uh, they've sacrificed so much in their lives for, for our, our, our well-being now. So uh, first of all, I wanted to just say that off the top is thank you both to, to John and Arthur for your service and, and uh, all, all of your, your sacrifices that you've made for this country and, and for others. And this is a really exciting uh, initiative that you've both taken part in. John, maybe I could ask you a little bit about what made you decide to get involved with it. What's what's it been like for you? Uh, excuse me. I've been put into the hospital here for quite a few times. I've had fifty-one strokes, and uh, and that's why I may speak about miracles that happen because saying a prayer creates miracles, and I've been almost cured, but I'm still suffering from them. And it's an honor to work downstairs with Veterans Arts. They have been fabulous for us. They keep us in pace. They keep us uh, uh, to enjoy the workmanship they perform. And we're learning a lot of things from them. And uh, it's an honor to be down there in the mornings. Thank you. It sounds like it would be... Uh, a very uh, both fun and and uh, educational experience, like you've said, John, that you, you're learning things about it. And maybe take me through what's it like to make those beads. What do you what do you do in those sessions? I kept thinking of the children, 
and I understand how they must be suffering and running wider, stuck in a, a confound area. I was confound when I was about two or three, and I'm uh, 78 now, and I still remember an experience happened to me when I was that time in the hospital. I had a teddy bear, and uh, it fell out of the crib, and nurse with volunteered picked it up, and she didn't know where it come from, and she gave it to a different patient, and I've had that on my mind now for 78 years. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, I finally got over it because they are, so, they are so good in the hospital to us. How could I hold on to a grudge like that? That's about all I can say. Well, John, I think that that's uh, that's wonderful, and it's uh, fantastic to hear uh, that you're able to, you know, share your wisdom and and all of your hope uh, for healing with with the little ones. And and perhaps now I could ask Arthur about why you decided to join in in this program, and and uh, what what have you enjoyed about it? Well, mainly the, the thought behind it is good because uh, one of my I don't know what he is a grand nephew, I guess. One of my brother's uh, sons married, and uh, their boy, their girl, is Stella, who was over there for, I guess, a good year into, into there. And I saw what the kids went through, and it was just terrible, you know, to, to think there's nothing you can do to alleviate this suffering. They're, they're just a tough place to be, and whatever we could do to make it easier, I, I would like to. So I'm... My wife, Glenna, got involved in making these bravery beads. Of course, I had to follow up her. I'd never live it down. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I naturally went along with the program and uh, decided we'd go over and, and tell the kids what we thought about the beads, which we did. And uh, it was well received, and, and I was pleased to see the children and the bravery that they are showing. It's amazing. I, I feel that, uh, you know, I think I sort of alluded to this before, that the bravery of our veterans and, and uh, both of you, John and Arthur, uh, it, it really does translate well to what the little ones are going through. And, and there's no better no better people, in my mind, to try and uh, provide comfort uh, to the little ones as they're going through their medical uh, trials and, and uh, tribulations and their treatments. So it's it's wonderful to, to hear that impact. Um, Kim, maybe you could tell us a little bit about... Uh, the beads themselves and in that process of creating them? Sure. Uh, we have two different types of beads we made. They're both made out of clay, and we start by rolling. The veterans roll the clay out, and then we cut the shapes out of the clay. There's one shape that's a poppy, and then the th thumbprint beads, which are circles, and the <clears throat> veterans pinch them to put their thumbprints in each of the beads. And then they're fired, and after that, we paint them with glaze, and then they're fired again. So then we get that very shiny bead look. It sounds absolutely beautiful, and, and I'm sure that, uh, as Arthur was saying, that they were well-received by the little ones, weren't they? Yes, they, they were. Well, I must say that the, the uh, looks of the beads and so on are all the result of Kim and the other instructors down there, because they make sure that we do things perfect. You guys do things properly. We're just there to help direct. <laughs> it's also a great uh, great place to go to uh, put your morning in or put your afternoon in. 
We so, enjoy it. Yeah, it would be a, a lovely uh, change of pace. You get to, you know, flex your creative muscles a little bit and uh, do something a bit different. Well, that's true. That's true. Ah, we well, do. That's wonderful. I think, I think the important thing that I thought I appreciated so, so much with these people helping me was that it was going to uh, give them to the children in the hospital. And uh, what, what I got involved in, and I'm a, I believe in miracles, and uh, it, when, when they said you put your fingerprint in, the, in the, the, the clay with the bravery beads, and as you embed your fingerprint into it, that it's an honor to me because I'm thinking of them that they're suffering in there, and uh, I say a little prayer. I've always done that. I believe in miracles, and I put my fingerprint into it and hope and pray that the kid survives this and enjoys life. I don't know if you believe in the power of prayer, but to me, I do. I've seen miracles happen, and that's what I got involved in, and I appreciate working with these children as much as I can help because I believe, as I say, miracles do happen. Thank you. I think that's absolutely beautiful, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think anyone could have said it better than than you did there. Um, just having that personal touch, literally a personal touch. You have a thumbprint or you know a fingerprint in that clay. It's something to know that those little little ones who get these beads, it's a it's a physical representation that people are out there thinking of them. Just as you said, John and Arthur, uh, it's it's something that they can hold with them through their lives. Hopefully, hopefully they they hold on to it and and know that uh, you know they they are pulling through. And and they are fighters, just like our veterans are. And it's uh, it's a wonderful program. And I'm so glad that we've been able to learn more about it from, from you, John, Arthur, and Kim. Thank you so much for your time today. And I, I am excited to see uh, as the program rolls on and, and as it continues. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you. It was lovely chatting with John and Arthur and Kim uh, from the Veterans Arts Program at Parkwood. And uh, Little Birdie also tells me that Arthur shared that one time he worked with someone here at 980 CFPL, that he was uh, responsible for writing brief synopsis of stories from the veterans who lived in the area, and that the host on the radio program would interview the veterans on air based on what Arthur had pulled together in that information. And it was apparently a regular feature on the station at one time. So Arthur is uh, an an alumnus of 980CFPL. So uh, it was a fantastic uh, to chat with them and an honor to speak with uh, John and Arthur. And again, I thank them very much for their service and for their work in the Warrior Beats program. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some wild pigs. Yeah, get ready. It's going to be interesting on 980CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Now, before we went to break there, I said we were going to talk about wild pigs. Your ears did not deceive you. I did say pigs, P-I-G-S. And uh, joining me on the line to talk about wild pigs and the fact that they are rapidly spreading across the country, which I had no idea, and it's time to, to worry about it. That's apparently apparently what's happening. Wild pig populations are just going hog wild, pardon the pun. On the line with me right now is Ruth Asham. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Saskatchewan, and she has studied this issue of wild pig populations. 
Ruth, thanks for, uh, you know, taking the time. And, and she, again, is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Saskatchewan. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to, to talk about your research. Thanks for having me. So this topic surprised me a little bit. Uh, I had no idea that wild pigs were such an issue in, in across Canada and really North America and, and even around the world, your research is, is indicating. Yes. So we knew that um, they were in many different countries that, from their native range as well as introduced range, but Canada is relatively new um, of a new distribution for wild pigs. And that's due to the fact that we brought them in as livestock. So in the 1980s and 1990s, Canada brought them in to diversify our livestock production. But what happened was escapes from these farms and intentional releases occurred. And um, then uh, we have these new species on the landscape now. It's pretty interesting, and it feels like it's um, a story that we hear from time to time from different jurisdictions. Uh, you know, you hear about people flushing goldfish down the toilets, or sometimes snakes get out uh, of, of, a, of a domestic setting, and then they, their population starts to spiral upwards. It seems like this is just, it's, it's happened with pigs. Absolutely. So pigs are a generalist species, um, which means that they can live anywhere or and. and adapt to any climate that they're introduced to. They're also omnivores, so they can eat anything, um, as well as they have really high reproduction rates. So these three things together really make them kind of the perfect invasive species that can survive anywhere that they're introduced to on the landscape. Something that made me chuckle a little bit, and it probably shouldn't make me chuckle because it is a serious issue, uh, but when you mentioned that uh, that they're very adaptable, um, they can even handle like Canadian winters out on the prairies, and they, they, they do something very specific to do that, how they survive. They make a little nest for themselves. Yes, we call it a pigloo, but that's just a little fun term we've, we've coined for that. Um, so yes, their native range is native to Russia and Siberia, and... So they're fine in the Canadian winters. They have um, lots of fur and and they have a downy coat underneath that can really keep them warm. And then, yes, they make these nests in the wintertime. They kind of just all huddle up in in these little cattail or grass nests and um, they have no problem surviving our cold winters brings on a, a new meaning to like pigs in a blanket, pigs in a pig glue, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yes. And so for anybody uh, who might hear this and be like, ah, okay, so what? There's pigs roaming around and what's the big deal? But this is a big deal. It does have uh, an impact on, on our landscape. Tell us a little bit about why this is an issue and we need to be mindful of it. There are so many negative effects with wild pigs. So we have ecological effects in terms of there's a loss of biodiversity when these animals are around. So they have a rooting behavior, which roots up vegetation, um, upturns the soil. It's like a rototiller went through an area. So this is they do this for a feeding behavior, but what this does is causes a large disturbance effect. It can alter the vegetation community um, that is present. and can alter the habitat and resources available for our native wildlife. It causes erosion a loss of biodiversity, um, and then we get a lot of erosion and sedimentation going into our water systems. Um, pigs need to thermoregulate to keep their temperatures regulated. They don't have any other means of doing that. So what they do is wallowing in a riparian area or close to a river system, um, and they do this by wallowing in the mud or water, but this creates, again, um, erosion and, and slumping of the riparian area. Um, leading to sedimentation in the water as well as they're in the water 
defecating and urinating. Um, so that leads to an increase in nutrient nutrients in the system, so an increase in algae growth. As well as we know, water is a really good source of indirect disease transmission to wildlife and livestock. Um, pigs are hosts to and vectors of numerous bacterial and viral diseases, um, some of which are the CFIA reportable diseases that we're really concerned about if they do get into our livestock populations, such as African swine fever, which has been in the news a lot lately. So pigs are able to transmit this disease to our livestock populations. So it's a really big concern in terms of if a disease were to get into our wild population could have really negative effects to livestock producers um, as well as trade implications. Yeah, so I mean, this is not just oh, a couple of cute little pigs roaming around the countryside. No, this is a this is a serious issue, and uh, we do need to be treating it as such. Um, what then should we be doing, Ruth, in terms of uh, combating this issue? Where do we go from here? So we always say, you know, when we look to the U.S., who's had wild pigs um, for many more years than us, and has put a lot more time, effort, and, and resources into fighting the problem. You know, we say look to them. They have, you know, done a lot of trial and error. They know what works, what doesn't work. One thing that's really worked is putting together a national strategy. So really combating wild pigs at a national, like federal level so that it's kind of done equally throughout every state. So right now we just have individual provinces. Are, um, uh, only individual provinces manage their wild pig problems. We don't have it on a national level. So I think if we get that national level strategy to do really aggressive and targeted management, um, I think that's the way to go. We need to put a lot of resources and, you know, money into this problem. Um, But we always say now what we would spend now to try and control and possibly eradicate them is nothing compared to what we would be spending in the future if we let this problem get out of hand in terms of crop damage, disease potential, um, you know, human health and safety, as well as the intrinsic environmental and ecological value of what they would cost. So I think, you know, putting that money in now is really what needs to be done and really aggressively getting after the problem. Yeah, I've heard of uh, some jurisdictions in the states even having, um, like they used to have uh, caps on uh, on the number of pigs that could be hunted uh, in certain areas. And now they've lifted those caps because they the populations have just kind of sprouted up at, at um, you know, at large rates. Uh, so it might be one of those situations where you have to, to look at, the, at a cull of some kind. And uh, yeah, it, it, like you said, like with so many issues, I feel that we talk about in the news, it's let's handle this now before it becomes a greater problem. Absolutely. later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have to be proactive about it. And um, what we actually say hunting and things like that in terms of sport hunting won't work. Um, it really educates the animals. They're so smart. Um, so it educates them. They become more elusive and wary of human presence. They'll change their activity patterns and behaviors and they'll move to new areas. So you really need it, you know, at a, tar- a very targeted um, strategy towards these animals for sure. Yeah, it's something that I'm always surprised to hear about uh, is just how wily pigs are. Like, I I saw something the other day, and I don't know about wild pigs, but I saw a a note and it said that a a pig can be as smart as a three-year-old child. (laughs) And I thought, that's that's unsettling. Smarter than some adults, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then we really have to come up with a good strategy. (laughs) Yeah, they're very smart animals. And just in terms of that, you know, human presence, they really avoid that. Um, so it's just a lot easier for them to avoid you because um, they hang out in the, in the really tough habitats um, 
they're elusive. It's fascinating to see uh, this type of work being done, Ruth. And uh, for anyone who's wondering how you manage to, uh, I guess, monitor the pigs so closely, tell us a little bit about the method just briefly before we let you go. So I just did it through social science methods. And so we were able to capture a broad broad, um, picture of what's going on here. So I did interviews with wildlife biologists and conservation officers, as well as I did a lot of um, interviews and just speaking with stakeholders, so people who lived and worked on the land and are aware of, of what's going on on the landscape. And by put, doing that, I was able to put together a database of this wild pig uh, population or distribution across Canada. It's amazing. So a lot of work has gone into this. And uh, Ruth, I thank you so much for your time today in sharing uh, the results of this study and also maybe what we can do down the road to help create